Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, it is a great privilege and joy to gather in your name today. We pray that you be honored through our singing, in our praying, in our giving, in our preaching, in our fellowship. We pray that the Holy Spirit make everything pleasing to you. In our church family, we, we have innumerable concerns and needs, and we're grateful that you know them all. You know them all totally, you know them all intimately. And we pray that you will address each one according to your desire, according to your will. Give us eyes to recognize your hands as they work among us. Give us humble hearts to embrace your plans with joy. Lord, we, for families that are struggling this morning, we pray that you would help them find their way. For persons that are facing hurt and uncertainty, we ask that you would guide them, that you would bring them through the darkness into your glorious light. For those that may be feeling the weight and the guilt of temptation, we pray for your protection. We pray that you would guard them. Lord, reveal your faithfulness and glory in them and through them. Father, bless this church. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much opportunity here in this place. We ask that you would help us take up our mantle and fulfill your plans here. Make us faithful witnesses to your saving grace. Make us effective gospel ministers to this community. Our community appears to be successful, superior, almost perfect, yet we know sin and brokenness are rampant everywhere. We pray that you would anoint us and use us to reveal your love and restoration. Lord, I'm grateful for gospel-preaching churches in our area. I pray this morning that you will speak through Nathan, that you will speak in and through Keith and Jeremy and Justin and Doug and Dean and Dustin and Aaron and Scott and Brian and Ken and Cliff and Troy and JP and Steve and Shane and so many others who will stand in their pulpits this morning. We pray that you would anoint, that you would empower them to preach your gospel and nothing else. That they would do so faithfully. And that their churches would hear your word eagerly and obey you. We pray that today the gospel might be proclaimed and evil would be pushed back. That you would bring converts to Christ that you would advance your kingdom, grow their churches, bless their ministries, protect them, Lord, from harm. Make the gospel resound through our streets in a glorious fashion. May there be no place from which to hide from your truth in this community. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you for receiving our worship. We pray that you would work in our hearts and that you would make us completely yours. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is good to be back with you. I'm grateful for all of your prayers and your encouragement. Uh, we enjoyed a little time of R&R. And uh, as much as we enjoyed that, enjoyed being there, it's uh, much more gratifying to be back with you today. But thank you for your prayers and your encouragement. Well, our community and city has had an exciting week and month, has it not? The Braves' improbable run to a World Series victory has been fun for lots of people. The last few days have been filled with much celebration. Recent months have been difficult 
in this community and many communities worldwide. There are a lot of challenges on the plate for people. So it's a good feeling to have reason to celebrate a victory, right? <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. Anytime a rival or an opponent is overcome, there's cause for celebration, for joy. It's normal for people to respond in this manner. I wasn't around, believe it or not, when World War I ended or World War II. But I've seen pictures, I've seen films like you have, documentaries, talking about the joy that swept through countries, not just our country, but people pouring out into the streets and embracing the exhilaration. Winning leads to great celebration, to relief, to unbridled joy. It's almost euphoric depending on the nature of the triumph. Truthfully, a month ago, World Series win was not expected here, was it? That makes it all the more joyful. It makes it all the more gratifying for an unexpected victory to come. It makes it much sweeter. All the confetti, the irrepressible smiles, the tears, the parades, the singing. So why bring this up in worship context? Well, because Psalm 149 is a victory celebration. It is a celebration, a great celebration. Some think it was written after Israel's release from Babylon. Some think that David wrote it after one of his many campaigns. Either could be true. But no matter the specific circumstance, it is a victory celebration. God has achieved deliverance for His people, and His people respond by expressing gratitude and enjoying the moment. It's a song to be sung after a great deliverance. Basically, there are two primary points that we should consider this morning. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to unpack them together. First of all, we see an imperative or an exhortation. We're told to sing a new song. To sing a new song. Not just any old song. Not any familiar song, but a new song. A different song. Something has broken afresh and anew. And then we see implications that follow that imperative. So let's take a look this morning, first of all, at the imperative. Sing a new song, as opposed to not singing. Now, if you were here earlier this morning, as we sang together, and you're one of those people that's sitting out there and not singing, you're not doing yourself any favors. And I know some of you think you're doing other people a favor by keeping it to yourself, but you're really not. We're not here to judge the quality of how we sing, but the heart that goes with our singing. We're told to make a joyful noise, not perfect harmony to the Lord. Perfect harmony is certainly fine. I'm not opposed to it. It's beautiful to hear, but it's the chords of the heart that are much more important. And it's to sing a new song as opposed to an old song. Clearly, it is about praising the Lord. This psalm, like all the others here at the end of the psalms, began and end with this phrase, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Extol Yahweh's virtues. Celebrate His glory. Verse 6 here describes it as high praises in their throats. Alan Ross says that the reference to throat as opposed to the mouth means it was to be a vigorous, loud declaration, a loud expression or utterance. And we addressed singing praises recently when we were studying Psalm 147. And we said then that praising God is not just singing, that's a big part of it, but it is about all of life. It's about everything that goes on in life. It should permeate all things. It begins in the heart 
with an attitude toward God that He is worthy to be honored. He is worthy of being king over all things. And we need to join in expressing that, letting that move from the inside, from our hearts, outward and being expressed. Whether it be through singing or through any other measure. God is worthy of honor and exaltation. Continually. Now, there are some obvious questions that we need to ask this morning. First of all, the most obvious, what is this new song and why is it new? Secondly, who is the imperative for? Who is he speaking to? Thirdly, how is this imperative to be carried out? So what is meant, first of all, by a new song? In contrast to an older song or a more familiar song, praise for Him. Praise the Lord, He says. And it implies a new day or a new reality. Something is different than it was before. God's people experienced many difficulties in their history. You can read through the Old Testament and you see this. Read through the history books and you will see that Israel as a nation has dealt with a lot of adversity, a lot of difficulty, a lot of bumps or obstacles in the road. But they have experienced also their share of victories. Even before Israel became a nation, before it reached that status, before God set it apart as a nation, as His people, He began with a man named Abraham. And you remember Abraham, you remember when he and Lot were prospering? And they prospered so much that the land couldn't support them, and they divided, they separated. Lot went one way, Abraham went another way. Not long after that took place, there there was an alliance of kings out in the area near Sodom where Lot went in the valley. And they they began uh, pillaging, they began raiding, they began warring against others, trying to take what did not belong to them. And in the midst of doing that, they abducted Lot. They took him with them and left the area. And Abraham, we think of Abraham being a man of faith and just being a a man, uh, a shepherd, so to speak. Maybe a gentle soul. We don't really get much out of it. But he rallied. He went and he was a, a wealthy man. He had lots of people in his household, so to speak. Lots of servants, lots of men, the Scripture says, who were trained. That he gathered 318 men. And they turned them into a posse. He turned them into a warring party of his own. And he gave pursuit after those kings, and he defeated those kings in the Lord's power and retrieved Lot and all the things that had been stolen and brought it back and put it where it needed to be. Adversity, but God gave victory. There was the Egyptian bondage that we talk about so often. 400 years, and the people were crying out under the labor that they were experiencing under this bondage. And God miraculously delivered them through the plague, setting them free, bringing them even through the Red Sea, parting it and removing Pharaoh and his armies who were giving chase. Canaan. You remember when they first approached Canaan? And the people expressed unbelief in God by looking. They sent the spies in. The spies came back and said, Look, there are giants in the land. It truly is a blessed land. It's a great land. There's much to be desired there. But there are giants guarding and protecting this land. There's nothing we can do. Because they didn't believe in God, because they didn't trust His Word, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But when it came time to go in, God took them across the Jordan at its zenith during the year when it was at flood stage. He took them across the Jordan and He delivered them from Jericho and began to give them the land in spite of the giants. God was faithful to them. All these obstacles that they saw, all the adversity they saw, and yet God continued to give victory upon victory. David was a great warrior. In fact, God would not let him build his first temple, his house, a permanent house for him, because he said David had too much blood on his hands. He was too much of a military man. 
But he was constantly winning battles against their adversaries like the Ammonites and the Philistines. So what is this new song all about? One victory stands out above all the others. We were born into this world into bondage. We're born into this world into captivity. We, our souls have been sold by the failure of Adam and Eve into bondage to the enemy. And we have no recourse. We have no option. The giants were too big. The chain's too secure. But God Himself condescended to become a man and set us free from that. So whether this psalm is referring to a particular release from captivity or a particular military campaign, it certainly, most certainly anticipates the great victory that Christ achieved. It is a new song. A new song. I'll show you in just a moment evidence to that effect. So who is to do this? Well, verse 1 says it is the assembly of the godly. The assembly of the godly. Ancient texts used to use the word beloved. It's a hard word, uh, some of the scholars tell us, to translate. But it means basically those who are beneficiaries of God's covenant love. Newer translations may use saints or devout or recipients of divine love. The people, in other words, who are truly God's people by faith in Christ Jesus. The Jews believed they were God's people due to their DNA. That because they could prove that their blood began with Abraham and they were descendants of him, physical descendants of him, that that entitled them to be called God's people. They practice circumcision as an outward sign of this inward DNA. They observe religious laws, rituals, feasts, all to express this relationship that they had with God, or so they believed. But Galatians 3, 7 tells us that the true people of God are so by faith, not by DNA. That our DNA only condemns us. Our DNA is linked to the first Adam who failed and took us with him. Faith in Yahweh's great victory through crucifixion and resurrection. And those who reject their desires, their efforts, their heritage, and recognize their only hope is faith in Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking about. That's the assembly of the godly that he's referring to. They recognize their only hope is in Christ. They put all their hope in Him and only Him. These are the true descendants of Abraham, the true people of God. Not genetic, not ritualistic, not tradition, not nationalistic, but a work of grace. A work of grace where God came seeking those that He considers His elect and calls them to Himself, empowers them with His own faith, That they might come repenting of their sin and put their belief in Him. And they become His people. They become His people. It's those who are in the new covenant with the Holy God. Hold your fingers right there just a moment. And look with me in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Not hearing many Bibles rustling. You must have those electronic Bibles. Revelation chapter 14. Let's just begin with verse 1 there and read two or three verses here together. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And listen, and they were singing what? A new song. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now turn back to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verse 9.
And they sang, what? A new song, saying, and here hear the lyrics. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, and every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As I said earlier, this psalm may be a response to a particular military victory or a celebration for God's deliverance, but it certainly anticipates the scene in Revelation. It certainly anticipates that ultimate and final victory and the new song that we'll sing for all ages throughout eternity. It points to ultimate victory over sin, evil, and despair. So this is the new song. These are the people that he's telling to sing the new song, his people. Then thirdly, how should they do it? Now this may make some of you uncomfortable. This is a word of caution, spoiler alert. If you were raised in a very conservative church, or your experience has been in a conservative church, or maybe in this church only, this may be very uncomfortable for you. How are they to enjoying this new song he says with dancing with instruments with tambourines so the question is is this a prescription for worship does this mean we have to revamp everything and make sure we have tambourines next week in order for it to be authentic. Don't shake those heads. It's not true. Listen to what Ligon Duncan says. He says, and I quote, When you see tambourines and lyres and dancing in the Old Testament, they only occur on very specific, very special occasions, not in temple worship, not in tabernacle worship, not in the private worship or the public worship of the patriarchs, but in very specific national contexts. Now, there are some examples that inform this point in Scripture. Let me give them to you so you won't think we're making this up. Exodus 15. You know the scene? I just referred to it earlier. What's happened? At Exodus 15, what's happened prior to that? Israel was in bondage. Moses came as God's ambassador and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Ten plagues later, Pharaoh, has, he's, broke, he's a broken man. He releases them. But his heart's not in it. He picks up his army as soon as they're out of sight. And he regathers, rethinks. And he says, I've got to go after them. And he, he starts after them. What does God do? God doesn't just have them outrun Pharaoh through the wilderness. What does He do? He hems them in. He hems Israel in with their backs to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his armies chasing them down. They have nowhere to run, nowhere to go. They have no rational, logical solutions for their problem. No way they can resolve this. So what does God do? God instructs Moses to raise his hand over the Red Sea and Moses said to the people, what? See the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord parted the sea and sent them across. And so there on the other side, Pharaoh's armies are swallowed up in judgment by God. And then what happens? What? They have a celebration, don't they? They have a party, you know? We just won the world. No, wrong, wrong group, right? We just, we just beat, we just beat the evil empire. The greatest nation on the face of the world at that time, the greatest superpower was Egypt, and we just beat them. Well, we didn't beat them. Who beat them? God beat them. So they set out and they start a victory celebration. Miriam, verse 20 of chapter 15, it says, the prophetess, the sister of Moses and Aaron, sings a song about the Lord's deliverance. It's a national celebration and praise to God, not worship per se. It's not a regular gathering of worship. It's a special occasion. 
Judges chapter 11, Jephthah. Jephthah was uh, kicked out of his own family because he was uh, not um, of the same mother as all of his siblings until they ran up against the Ammonites and they didn't have enough firepower. They didn't have anybody who could lead them in victory. So they went and begged him to come back. And Jephthah, not missing an opportunity, said, I'll tell you what, I'll come back and lead you to victory, but when I do, I'm going to be in charge. And they were in such dire straits, they said, okay, we'll do it your way. And then he led them in victory against the Ammonites. It was a great victory. And when they came back, when he was coming back, it says as he returned home, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dancing, celebrating a great victory. But it wasn't worship gathering. 1 Samuel 18, David victorious, coming back. You remember this is the scene where the people were whispering among themselves. Saul as one beat, uh, captured his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Made Saul very jealous. But it says that he was greeted with dancing, with tambourines. Second Samuel 6, after reclaiming the ark, after it fell into the Philistines' hands, David went to transport the ark to Jerusalem. He did so with dancing, with instruments. Now, people blur those lines and think that it was prescribing worship, but it doesn't. These all point to what is described here in Psalm 149. It's a celebration for a victory that God has granted. A great victory, a new occasion, meriting a new song. It anticipates the new song that God's people will sing for all of eternity. So what's the implications for the singers of this new song? Well, they are a new kingdom. They are a new kingdom. They are the godly adopted by God into His family. They are the humble who reject selfish pride and sin. I love this verse. In verse 6, before the Lord takes pleasure in His people, He adorns the humble with salvation. You could translate that as He beautifies them with salvation. He beautifies them. Are you one of those people that like a day at the spa? I'm not going to ask you guys to raise your hand because I know it will embarrass you, threaten your manhood, all those kind of things. Are you one of those people that likes a, a day spa visit? What happens at those things? They, they might give you a massage. They give you one of those facials, put all that ugly cream on your face and do your nails and your toenails. Is that right? Have I got that right? Uh, you know, I raised three girls. I think I understand what those days are like. Day spa. Why do we do that? We call them what? Beauty treatments, right? Do they work? I think they probably work. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not one to judge. I'm not in a position to judge. They probably work. But it goes in, in step with what, what are we trying to do in this life? You, people go off and spend weeks at some kind of a health spa, and they're trying to, what, shape up, you know, get themselves looking, feeling a little better. We're trying to fight against this deterioration that is certain in this fallen world. We're trying to reverse what's inevitable. And it's not going to happen. Let me show you. You know, when God made creation, what did He say? He said it several times as He was putting creation into place. He said it was good, didn't He? Now, when God says good, He means good. It's perfect when God does it. And He made everything perfect. But look with me in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Beginning with verse 18. You know these verses, I'm sure. And you don't like to read them. They're not pleasant. They're not encouraging. In fact, they're just the opposite. Verse 18 of Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we became unrighteous. We became this became a broken world. All that God had made and made good was put on another path. 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And, they, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of evil, of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Good? No, not any longer. What God made and announced was good and perfect, sin has utterly broken and turned it into a fallen mess. God, but God, but God in all His grace, all His glory, all of His splendor, all of His power has gone about this process of what? beautifying, beautifying the fallen elect unto Himself, beautifying the creation that He made, restoring it again. He's in the process of changing what is fallen and broken, making it good again. Well, the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Luke gave you a great breakdown last week of justification. The great exchange. Our sin for His righteousness. That's on the books. God's got books up there. And if you have put your trust in Christ today, He's looking at you not as a picture of Romans 1, but He's looking at you through Romans 5 and 4. Now he sees Christ and his righteousness when he sees you. Not Romans 1 and all that ugliness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in a Christ, what? He is a new creation. He is a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. The ugly old effects of sin are vanquished. The glory, the righteousness of Christ is restored. This is what God declares to be true. And now sanctification in this life is God working what's in you now, what He has declared to be true. He's working that out and producing fruits in accordance to what He has declared to be true. He's moving you toward a day where the old will finally disappear. All of its last vestiges will go away and you indeed will appear as Christ. Exult in glory, you who are His people. Extol or proclaim, celebrate His goodness and His virtue. This is a picture of the abundant honor that God confers on His saints. Be joyful, be exuberant. Be rejoicing. It's interesting to me that he encourages them to shout for joy on their beds. <laughs> uh, you may do that after a hard day. Uh, David worked us out here yesterday unmercifully. He was a tyrant to clean up 
Isn't that right, Jim? I'm not lying. And so when I laid down in the bed last night, I wanted to shout for joy. I just didn't have enough energy. Why on their beds, though? Well, some suggest it's because in days of affliction, they went to their beds in tears. Hosea 7 tells us that. Hosea 7.14 says, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They were wrapped up in despair. Have you ever been there? You know, where you just didn't want to get out of bed? Or where things were going kind of in a wrong direction and you just want to go to the bed? Why is that? Why do we find comfort there? It's a place of comfort. It's a place of privacy. You can shut the world out. You can hide. Are we trying to sort out our emotions or what's going on in us? I think we're just trying to get away from whatever is wounding or scarring or hurting us. Whatever's disappointed us. It's normal for us to seek security there. We don't want to face the real world. Just crawl under the cover and bury your head under the pillow. We lament our circumstances and our wounds. We may wail and bawl uncontrollably. Or we may sob quietly. But it's a place we go to kind of let it out. The night also is the hardest when you're facing difficult times, isn't it? When the rest of the world is asleep or has disengaged and you're completely alone in the dark. Just you. And those voices that are tormenting you or discouraging you, defeating you, they're so loud in the dark and at night. It's a place of restlessness. There are many of you, when you have troubles, you're struggling with things during the day, when you go to bed at night, that's supposed to be a place of solace, a place of peace. But the troubles turn it into a wrestling match, don't they? An agonizing, long night. But in Christ, but in Christ, he says that can become a place of joy, a place of peace. That he is more than sufficient to deliver us from what ails us in those places. Israel faced so much adversity and oppression. All through the Old Testament, they sing this song. This is their old song. Has God abandoned us? Has God given up on us? And you've sang that song, haven't you? Crabapple, you've sang that song, haven't you? God, have you forsaken us? God, have we done so much that's egregious to you that you will not, cannot save us or receive us again? Are you rejecting us forever? Many of you have rehearsed that song while wrestling with discouragement and depression. Dealing with contentious relationships. Struggling with issues with your spouse. Am I beyond God's interest? Am I beyond God's ability? Will God leave me to perish? Has He given up on me? Have I messed up so severely that God will not help? But the psalmist says here, The Lord takes pleasure in His people. Are you one of His? Do you belong to Him today? If you're one of His today, if you're one of those that belong to Him, He takes pleasure in you. He pleasures in you. Like you would your own child, like you would your own grandchild, would, like you would that special relationship that you have. No matter how rocky things may get, you take pleasure, joy, 
in that relationship. And God's pleasure dwarfs anything that you can muster up for anyone. These last verses can create a little bit of confusion. It seems as if God is telling His people to engage in military offenses. To go out and take up the sword and let's go to battle. Like He did with Israel in the Old Testament. He talks about a two-edged sword. Some may think this is a call to arms. But I think He's encouraging us to rest in Christ. I think He's encouraging us to trust that Christ is the one who gains the victory. That Christ is the one who fights for us and brings about the victory. Hebrews 4.12 uses the sword as a metaphor for God's Word. Revelation 1.16 describes the ascended Christ as one holding seven stars in His hand, and from His mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 19.5 speaks about Christ's return and says, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Ephesians 6.17 says the, word, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Revelation 2.12 and 16 say, And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. God's Word. What a wonderful gift to His people. Jeremiah said in chapter 5 that it was a devouring flame. In chapter 23, he calls it a hammer. <laughs> a hammer that shatters. In Ezekiel 37, it's a life-giving force. In Romans 1.16, it's saving power. In Ephesians 6.17, it's a defensive weapon. In Hebrews 4.12, it's a probing instrument. In John 17.17, 17, the Lord Himself was praying, and He said it's a purifying power for His people. God's people must lean into the faithful provision and promise. Trust His Word. Trust that He fights for us. The sword is His Spirit that goes before us, that He might blaze a trail, a path through all situations. The sword is our defense against the enemy. This sword, this Word, is our hope ultimately and finally. He will judge the nations, the unruly, the rebellious, all the things, all those people that you think are getting ahead today by doing things that are not kosher, things that are not good. God's going to settle those accounts. He will avenge the rebellious. Acts 17, 31, He says, He has set, it, set in place a day, appointed a day, whereby the man, Christ Jesus, shall bring judgment. He shall bring judgment. Let me ask you, what is the state of your heart today? Do you currently claim a relationship with Christ? Does your life reflect that claim? Does your life affirm what you say so easily? I had a conversation this week with someone. And he was dealing with some issues. And I asked him, I said, I, I want to know uh, something about yourself and he started telling me and he said I'm a good Christian boy I said okay well tell me why that's true well you know where he went well I've done this and I've done that and I've done that and I haven't done this and I haven't done that and you know I got my life together a few years ago and I'm I'm a good Christian boy I said what does it mean when you say the word Christian what does that mean to you because for me, it has a very particular meaning. The Scripture uses it in Acts. And it says that it's little Christ. It's those who look like Christ. It's not a title. It's almost a verb. We bantered around like it's some kind of a 
I don't know, a title that gets us a free pass somewhere. And nothing could be further from the truth. You can show up, you can show up at the judgment seat at the throne of God and you can say, well, I've been a Christian all my life. God said, well, there are lots of people that claim to be Christian. But I'm going to go a little deeper if you don't mind. So I asked this young man, I said, what does it take to be an American? He said, well, you have to fight. I said, do you? Been lots of Americans through the years that never had to fight. I said, to be an American means you're a citizen of this country, doesn't it? You, you can be born or you can be naturalized. But you have to become a citizen of the country. Then you may fight. You may do lots of things. Pay taxes. You may have uh, a work in, a, in this society. Cast votes. All those kind of things that go with being a citizen. But you have to be a citizen to call yourself an American. And I don't care how liberally you want to use the name Christian until you've been born into the kingdom. You are not one, dear friend. You're not one. It doesn't fit. You have to be a citizen. You have to be a citizen of that country. That country for which Christ has procured through His death, burial, and resurrection. It's not in the DNA or the rituals. It's in being born again in Christ. When I travel outside the United States, it's always intrigued me how people from around the world always know I'm an American. It's amazing. Just a little time with me and they will look at me and say, you're, you're an American, aren't you? I say, there's probably a negative connotation there. But what's interesting is that they have, they have a description in mind and they link it to what they see and observe in me. And I'm going to tell you something. There is a clear description connected to the title Christian in Scripture. And the world ought to be able to look at us and know we're Christian rather than wonder what in the world we're doing most of the time. Are you confident in your ultimate victory over sin, death, and hell? Are you joyfully extolling the virtues of Yahweh in your life, in the decisions that you make, in the attitudes that you display and manifest, in the way that you manage your life day by day? Many of you watched the Braves or the Bulldogs or whomever it was this week that's your team, and if you had a victory, you just couldn't contain yourself. You know, I can't watch the Braves. It's not good for my relationship with Christ. And they play better when I don't watch them. So I have to follow them from afar. I check the score, and that's all. My wife, she likes to watch them. And so she watched every moment. And it was funny, the other night in the clinching game, I'm upstairs in the bedroom, I'm watching something else. She's downstairs, and all of a sudden I started hearing something. She was having a conversation. And I thought, who's in my house at 11.30 or 11 o'clock or whenever it was? And I went to the door. She was on the phone. You know Why? Because she was so excited by what was going on with the game, she couldn't sit there in silence. She had to call somebody that she knew could empathize with her in her joy. When you have one of those kind of moments, whether it's a victory or whether it's good news, you can't contain it. You have to share it with someone, don't you? I want to ask you if... Our Lord has truly done for us what He says He's done for us. He has given us the best news ever. Why is it so easy for us to contain it? It ought to be bursting at the seams from our hearts and resonating in everything that we do with the people we encounter.
It's so much better than a World Series victory. While that's fun, I'm going to tell you, it, it doesn't hold a candle to what's coming. What's coming? What's coming? You may be here today and still trusting in yourself. I'm going to encourage you today, let this be the day of salvation, to repent of your sin and trusting in self and to put all your trust and hope in what Christ has done for you. It's not too late. If you're breathing today, if you have a pulse right now, it's not too late. But when you leave this world, it will forever be too late to reverse your decision. There will be no more opportunities. You must do it now. In the hearing of the Word of God, the Gospel, you must repent and turn to Him. What say you today? Father, we're thankful. We bless you and praise you for who you are. You are a great and mighty God. Lord, what, what glorious news is the Gospel. We pray that today you might speak into our hearts that Lord, if there's one here who does not know you, that even right now your Spirit is bringing the gift of repentance and faith to bear in their heart, and that today will be the day that they turn from trusting in self and pursuing the validation and enjoyment that this world may offer and put their trust in you, lean into you totally, only, completely, you. Lord, make it so. For those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that today we might catch a glimpse of the victory that is ours. And that each day might be a day of celebration. Lord, not just uh, cavalierly, not with some kind of superficial hilarity, but that we might embrace the joy of our salvation the beautification that you're bringing to bear in our lives, that we might pursue it with everything in us for your glory, Lord, and in anticipation of that ultimate celebration that's to come. Make it so today, Lord. Let us put off the things that encumber us. Let us put away the things that become obstacles in our path that we might truly, truly serve you and represent you in this world in a glorious fashion. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Cheers,